This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In 1979, Reformed Christianity was hardly flourishing in North America. An attempt to establish a Reformed seminary in Florida had failed. Tele-evangelism seemed to be the face of Protestantism. It did not seem like an auspicious time to begin a Reformed seminary on the West Coast. But that's exactly what Westminster Seminary did, and that seminary is Westminster Seminary, California. In celebration of our 30th anniversary, W. Robert Godfrey and Daryl G. Hart have authored a history of the seminary, Westminster Seminary, California, a new old school. Available now through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. In studio for office hours today is W. Robert Godfrey, president and professor of church history. And joining us by phone is Daryl G. Hart, adjunct professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California, and visiting professor of history at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. Hi, Bob. Hi, Scott. Hi, Daryl. Hello, Scott. Well, you fellows have produced a history of the seminary. Let's start with the title so that everyone knows what we're talking about. The subtitle says, New Old School. What does old school mean? And we'll come back and talk about new school in a minute. Old school refers to the split among Presbyterians in 1837 when Presbyterians of an old school variety opposed uh, among other things, Finney's new measures in the Second Great Awakening. Uh, they were also opposed to the congregational elements in the Presbyterian Church that had come into the church through the Plan of Union of 1801. They were not wild about the New Haven theology that was also uh, in their uh, prov- provinces thanks to the, the Plan of Union. So old school was an effort to recover a jury divino Presbyterianism, a, a, a high view of the church and church courts and church polity, Presbyterian polity, as well as classic Reformed orthodoxy when it comes to the doctrine, doctrines of grace. Where did the New School dissent from classic Reformed theology? For starters, it was the uh, federal theology, and especially Albert Barnes, who was tried many times and uh, was never convicted, but denied the imputation of Adam's sin— and then uh, eventually Nathaniel Taylor, who was the figure associated most with the New Haven theology, would go on to deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So that federal theology was very much at issue, and the New Englanders generally thought that that kind of um, guilt that people would bear thanks to Adam's sin in original sin was unfair, inequitable. So you can see in, in New School an Americanization of Calvinism, and also, New School was was uh, promoted a number of reform activities in various voluntary associations and agencies in order to make America a more Christian place. So in some ways, the New School was the most American of the two branches in trying to make the Presbyterian Church much more responsive to American trends and ideals and also trying to Christianize America at the same time. Now, Bob, when you 
use the adjective new and you say a new old school, what are you saying about Westminster Seminary, California? This is a history of Westminster Seminary, California, which obviously is a history only 30 years old. And we recognize that we are a new seminary. We haven't had a a really long existence. And so I thought it would be a clever play on words, but probably only clever to the mind of a historian to subtitle this book, A New Old School, so that we are committed to the great enterprise of old school Presbyterianism, um, but we are a new school doing that. So it would be less confusing to say we are a new seminary doing that. I thought it appropriate to the history of our school because Princeton Seminary was the great intellectual center of old school Presbyterianism in the 20s and 30s and thereafter. Since we very much see ourselves as uh, part of the uh, intellectual and spiritual heritage of old Princeton Seminary in this country. It seemed appropriate to connect ourselves there. We don't intend thereby to say that we are an exclusive Presbyterian school. We draw on other Reformed traditions as well. But I do think the peculiar issues, as Daryl put it, of Americanization are pressures that Reformed and Presbyterian churches face in every generation. What we're trying to do in that book is put our school in a historical context, that we recognize our history by itself would not be fascinating except to a few hundred people have been closely associated with us, 900 graduates, faculty members, friends and donors. I mean, that would be a small constituency that would just like to hear our very distinctive history. So we're trying to put our mission in context and see how in the last 30 years, there have been a lot of changes in American evangelicalism that's put a lot of pressures on all seminaries. And we're trying to show how we as an institution have related to those pressures. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When you say new old school, are you suggesting in some ways that the seminary is backward looking or forward looking? Or how do you think about those things? No, I don't think we're backward looking. I think we want to try to preserve and understand the great heritage that is ours in Reformed Christianity. But our passion as an institution is the importance of that heritage for ministry today and tomorrow. Uh, We're not just trying to create a museum here where people can come and see dinosaur bones. Not that we we don't have any dinosaur bones around (laughs) here. (laughs) Or any dinosaurs. You know, our passion is not just that Reformed Christianity is true, but that it's invaluable and useful. It's what the churches really need. So that's what we're trying to focus on. Daryl, give us a thumbnail sketch of the history of Westminster Seminary so the listener can have a sense of where this school is relative to old Westminster. Westminster started in 1929. J. Grissom Machen, the leading figure associated with that, that was about midway through the Presbyterian controversy of the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and Machen was a major figure in those controversies as well. Some of the controversies was over Protestant liberalism, and Machen wrote his probably most important book, Christianity and Liberalism, 1923, to argue that liberalism was an entirely different religion. The church didn't agree with Machen, and basically whitewashed the Presbyterian Church USA in 1925. Then the church went ahead and investigated Princeton Seminary because there was some disagreement among the faculty administration. J. Ross Stevenson and Charles Erdman were much more on the pro-mainline, pro-mainstream Presbyterian side of things, and Charles Erdman in particular took umbrage a number of times when Machen didn't support Erdman's view of the church, and there was no reason for Erdman to think that Machen would support his view of the church, but still uh, Erdman took offense, and so the church 
established a committee to investigate the tensions at, at Princeton. That led to a reorganization of Princeton Seminary, and Machen at that point took his marbles and went to Westminster in Philadelphia in 1929. The next turning point really was 1936 with the formation of the OPC. Machen had been tried for defying the church and was excommunicated from the church, and so Westminster then was very much associated with the OPC in 1936, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but also with the Christian Reformed Church because of a large Dutch Reformed presence on the original Westminster faculty. So the kind of shared heritage that the OPC has from the Dutch and American sides, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia also had. Westminster Philadelphia went through probably two generations of faculty prior to the f- establishment of Westminster California. The first generation highly regarded, revered by everyone, Cornelius Van Til, John Murray, Ned Stonehouse, R.B. Kuyper, E.J. Young, uh, Paul Woolley, all these people, if there were posters in the reform world, they'd have one. And then the second generation, though, there was maybe some slippage away from the kind of militancy that had informed the first generation. So by the time that Westminster, California was started, Westminster, Philadelphia, and I would say that the reform world more generally, OPC, the PCA is a new denomination at that time, was looking for ways of establishing a, a greater presence in America, greater influence as well. And, and so that's where Westminster stood, Westminster, California, when it was founded by the second borderline third generation of Westminster faculty, a school that had, again, gone from being militantly conservative up through at least 1970, and then in the 70s and 80s began to shift its understanding of what was militant, what was needed to uh, to protect and maintain Reformed orthodoxy. Bob, both you and Daryl have mentioned the constituency of Westminster Seminary, that it wasn't purely Presbyterian. Talk about that constituency, and then we'll come back and talk about what it meant for the seminary to go west and how things have changed since 1979. Westminster Seminary, from its founding, had one significant difference from Old Princeton. Old Princeton had been a denominational seminary. Uh, Machen, for a variety of ecclesiastical reasons that he faced in his own day, decided to form an independent seminary, although his intention was to continue to try to serve the Presbyterian Church significantly. But in that process of founding an independent seminary, it meant that the seminary in some ways would be freer to serve a variety of denominations. It wasn't to establish a church against the church or alongside the church, but to serve the church and to be able to do that across denominational lines. That meant from the beginning, it uh, drew not only from traditional Presbyterian groups in America, uh, but also from Dutch Reformed groups as well. A seminary in Philadelphia actually debated at one point whether it ought to seek to become a denominational seminary, or maybe it was the OP that debated whether they ought to seek for Westminster to become a denominational seminary. Daryl know that better than I do, but decided to remain independent. And I think we have felt out here that our being an independent seminary, whereas it has certain liabilities, does really help us be, as Bob Strumpel liked to say, trans-denominational. We're able to serve a variety of denominations, which has included German Reformed as well as Dutch Reformed and various kinds of Presbyterian. Korean. And Korean. Presbyterian groups as well, absolutely. Daryl and and Bob, I'd like you both to comment on this because I would be interested to hear your take on this. How has the evangelical theology, piety, and practice changed since 1979 when Westminster Seminary, California was founded? Daryl, why don't you go first and then Bob? Why does he always get to go first? (laughs) Well, we... (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. In 1979, evangelicalism was experiencing a controversy over inerrancy, but the, the leading lights of evangelicalism, people like Carl Henry, people like Harold Denzel, and these were people that were fairly high up in Christianity Today magazine circles, were defending inerrancy and holding on to that as a, an important piece of evangelical Protestant identity, and also trying to defend the authority and infallibility of Scripture. It's probably the case that they ended up losing that debate, although there was never a referendum or an umpire or judge verdict. But the younger generation rejected that in some ways, softer versions and harder versions of that rejection. So that's that's an important change right there. Inerrancy is not nearly the doctrine that held evangelicalism together. Um, it, it's not that way anymore. Then another important phenomenon, it, change in practice is the rise of the megachurch. Now, I guess there were always big churches, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention. You could call um, them megachurches, and Robert Schuller and um, the Crystal Cathedral in Anaheim would have also been examples of this. But Willow Creek and... Hybels? Yeah, Bill Hybels. Willow Creek and Bill Hybels represented a a new turn, a way for evangelicals to have megachurches reach suburban groups, a, a different philosophy of church growth, uh, which also was coupled with contemporary worship, whether it was charismatically influenced or influenced by the Jesus Rock movement of the 70s. Along came a new form of worship and a new form of Christian song that made churches contemporary and unashamed, in effect. And there was no real worry about whether any of this seems to me could be displeasing to God because it was pleasing to so many people. So in those important ways, when it comes to worship, church ministry, and also uh, theology, the doctrine of scripture, evangelicalism has changed significantly since 1979. Bob, hold your comments and we'll get to you right after this break. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. I think that's absolutely right. I, I would go a little farther and say that evangelicalism is inherently unstable uh, because it seeks constantly the question of what is the minimal that binds us together, that characterizes us, that makes us pleasing to God. And um, in some ways, that minimum is doing evangelism. And therefore, you can justify almost any change, any development that takes place in evangelicalism as a a way of making the churches more effective in fulfilling the Great Commission. I think people are very sincere when they say that, but I think they're often wrong. You go back, as Daryl knows much better than I, to the early 20th century, and what you basically have is liberals saying, we are evangelicals who are going to make the church relevant to the contemporary world. And then in the 60s and 70s, when evangelicalism suddenly was discovered by the broader culture, uh, then there was pressure in evangelicalism to be more influential, more 
more effective, and that led to undermining what we're seeing as as old-fashioned and inhibiting sorts of doctrines. It's very much like the old-school, new-school controversy in the 19th century. The new school felt it could streamline Calvinism to make it more revivalistically effective. You have the same thing in the early 20th century with liberalism. I think you have the same thing sort of in the 70s with some of the neo-evangelicals. And certainly we're saying the same thing right now. One begins to almost believe in a cyclical view of history. Evangelicalism, once again, is expanding to the point where the label almost has no meaning. Look at the discussions about the historicity of Adam. People are discussing that today as if it's a topic that has never come up before. And yet for 200 years, the church has been dealing with the question of the relationship of Bible and science, particularly around Adam and his historicity. But uh, a lot that drives the discussion now in evangelical circles, it seems to me, is how can we expect moderns to embrace Christianity if they have to believe in historical Adam? We want to make Christianity easier and more acceptable, so let's do away with this relatively minor matter of Adam. That's the kind of thing we exist to stand against and say whatever the Bible teaches is important and we need to preserve it. One way to illustrate the shift in evangelicalism since 1979, to pick up on where Daryl was, is that when I started seminary in the early 80s, one of the main topics of discussion was inerrancy. And it's still something that we teach, we believe, we confess. But since that time, the evangelicals have gone on to, at least in some cases, reject the idea that God not only controls the future— but that he can even know the future, which in 1979 was probably something that you would not have expected to hear from Carl Henry or Harold Lenzel or the neo-evangelical movement from the 40s through the 70s. In 1979, I don't think it was widely questioned among evangelicals whether Protestants and Roman Catholics had different views of how people are accepted with God. But by 1994, there was open question among evangelicals about how people are accepted with God, so that you had open evangelical defection from justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Right, and you see that, it seems to me, in Billy Graham as the forerunner. Uh, When Billy Graham made the decision that he would cooperate with Roman Catholic churches in his crusades, that priests could sit on the platform, that people would be sent back to Roman Catholic churches that came forward, there again you see an accommodation in the interests of revivalism, evangelism, and getting people saved. Of course, you're sort of avoiding the question of what does it really take to get people saved? What do they need to believe? What, what's the function of the church in the life of the saved? I always forget exactly when Billy Graham made that decision. Maybe Daryl knows, but it was remarkably early in his career. Yeah, I'm not sure when. I know 57 was when he cooperated with so-called modernists in, New, in the New York crusade. But So I would assume... The Roman Catholic uh, cooperation came in the 60s, but especially after Vatican II. But all of this, you see, is is in the interest of trying to be more influential, whether it's to make America more moral or to get more people converted. Evangelicalism has always been willing to make concessions that struck Reformed people as wrong because the concessions were unbiblical. Both of you have been involved in Westminster Seminary, California, intimately for a long time. Bob, from the almost the very beginning of the school. And What I'd like to know is when you sat down to do this work, did you learn anything about the history of the school, the nature of the school, or anything else that you didn't know before you started writing? There were um, several things, I guess. Writing the book made me think more carefully about some of the issues I had experienced in 
the Reformed world, particularly some of the developments in the Christian Reformed Church in the uh, 80s and 90s, it came home with me much more powerfully that what was happening in the Christian Reformed Church was a microcosm of what was happening more broadly in the evangelical world. I don't think I'd fully coordinated those things in my mind before. The other thing that struck me was the year 2000 was a pretty important year in the history of the seminary in that a lot of people who had been here for quite a while took jobs elsewhere or retired at that point. So that was a a point at which there was a a fairly significant faculty shift in five years around 2000. I hadn't really thought about that before. Again, you live in an institution year by year, and its own periods of history don't strike you quite so clearly. I would say um, what was striking was how difficult and almost monumental it was to to actually start a seminary from scratch. Um, We live now at a time when branches of seminaries are more or less taken for granted, though how many of those branches have been successful is another question. I think Reform Reform Seminary has, has, um, in the Reform world anyway, has has established the model. So planning another seminary is a very different proposition from planning a church, much more expensive. So the task of taking one seminary on one coast, putting one on on the other coast was really enormous, but it was also striking to me how much Reformed churches in California needed some kind of institutional uh, sustenance from a, from a seminary or college. I mean, it's a big state. There are a lot of a lot of people in California, even more so now, and there are a lot of Reformed churches out there, particularly in Southern California, with the um, the Dutch Reformed. So there there really was a need, and the thought of you know people having to send their men for the ministry back to Philadelphia or somewhere Grand Rapids which is a long way. It's a big continent. So, you know, there really was was a need at the time. And then, too, to think uh, this isn't as striking, but it was fun to, co- to consider, which is the nature of Protestantism in California and some of the odd figures who have emerged over, over time. Amy Semple McPherson, of course, who Bob knows about, a lot about, and we don't want to necessarily get him started on that, but Bob Schuler, whom I mentioned, and, and Rick Warren, and Fuller Seminary was out there, but, and this goes back to the other question as well, Fuller Seminary established in 1947, one of the institutions of neo-evangelicalism, but again, when Westminster went out there, it was pretty clear that, that Fuller was not as solid as it maybe once had been. They had gone through the inerrancy controversy, and, and a lot of the people who were the strongest defenders of inerrancy at Fuller actually had to leave, and a number of them went back to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois. So again, there was a real need in California for a Reformed seminary to serve the Reformed and other churches out there, but also it was a major task for a seminary in Philadelphia like Westminster was, and, and a relatively small one. It wasn't as prosperous or even numerically large as we might think it was. And so it was a major effort to do this. That's right. Westminster in Philadelphia was not much larger than we are today here. So it, it was a, a major undertaking. And unlike a lot of branch campuses that are started of seminaries today, the real intention was to have a full seminary with a full library, a full faculty out here, not just have people flying in to cover things. That's right. It was a very courageous undertaking. And uh, having talked to both Bob Dendalk and Bob Strimple about it, I think they both felt that they were blessedly naive as they set out to do it. I don't think they realized 
uh, initially quite how huge an undertaking it was. It is remarkable how along the way the Lord raised up crucial people to help them and encourage them along the way. It really does almost make you believe in providence. (laughs) That's a joke for you out there in Radioland. What was the single greatest challenge? Well, you know, when we had discussions back in Philadelphia, because I taught in Philadelphia before I came out here in 1981, we thought there were probably enough students and probably enough money. The question was, would there be enough faculty? And uh, I think over the years, we've seen that money was the bigger problem. <laughs> Faculty are cheap. Um, you know, we, we've sometimes wanted more students than we've had, but we've had students. We've, uh, we've sometimes wanted better faculty than we've had. That's a joke. We have always had a great faculty. It just is always a struggle, as I think an awful lot of Christian organizations find, to, to raise money. We have to raise, you know, now $2 million a year. That's a lot of money for a little school to raise. Again, the Lord has been amazingly faithful. Theological education is not a Christian cause that captures the imagination of vast numbers of people. But the Lord has um, always raised up the people we need. But I would say that's where the tension has been. Um, uh, Where are we going to find the money we need to keep doing the work we're doing? You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Daryl, what do you think the greatest benefit has been of starting this seminary? I'm not sure that I would say that this was necessarily in in view, but I, you know, as, as the subtitle of the book suggests, with the old school part of it, I think that Westminster, California, over time came to see its roots uh, in that old school tradition, and and now does stand for. Stanford in ways that the other Reformed seminaries do not. That doesn't mean that old-school Presbyterianism was the only reliable Reformed voice out there. But in in America, Old Princeton had a remarkable run from 1812 to 1929. Other seminaries did not maintain their fidelity that long. And Princeton established a, a vigorous intellectual tradition of defending and engaging in polemical theology to uh, maintain the Reformed faith. And so Westminster, California, you know, people can read it in the, in the book to see how some of this played out. I don't know that it was intentional by anyone, but given what was happening in evangelicalism, as Reformed churches may have been embracing some of those developments in evangelicalism, I think Westminster, California eventually came to see real problems with a contemporary worship or church growth movement or evangelical theology, evangelicals and Catholics together, you, you know, you, the list could go on. And so Westminster, California has risen to the task and more or less reclaimed that old Princeton character of militantly standing for the Reformed faith and the truths of Scripture. And so I think that's been the real contribution of Westminster, California. I know, Bob, that you're a finite human being and you don't know the providence of God in the future. Nevertheless, what do you think the future is for Westminster Seminary, California? I think at the moment the future looks very bright. We are enthusiastic about the number of students we've been able to educate, both for the ministry and for other service to the church, uh, now nearing 900 graduates. I was particularly struck in preparing this book as to how many books and articles our faculty have written over this relatively short period. I think in the 19th century, early 20th century, conservative Protestants, when they wanted to find a really good book on something, often looked to Princeton. It was the reliable center of first-rate scholarship. They didn't always accept all of what Princeton was saying because they weren't all reformed in the way Princeton was, but they recognized the scholarly quality of what Princeton uh, was doing. And I think while we don't have 
perhaps certainly the history or yet the notoriety that Princeton had. I think our faculty is fulfilling something of the same function, that people look to us for careful scholarship. And um, if if they become concerned about what's going on in evangelicalism, they may well look to us and to our faculty and to its writings for a critique and for a different way of thinking and, and seeing things. We might be the school of, wait just a minute. <laughs> Have you really thought that through? Is this really what the Bible says? And I think that's critical in the increasingly pragmatic world of America, where the key standard by which we measure truth tends to be how big is the church of the truth teller. In the history of the church, that has not been a sound way to evaluate truth. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.